Hi, I'm Monica. And I'm Emma. Welcome to Fanfare, in which cultural luminaries invite their dream guests to dinner. Before we get into the show, can we make a brief detour into my closet? Always. Well, we've talked about this before, Emma, but fashion is like cooking. What? No. Well, yes, it all comes down to the ingredients. Oh. Yeah. When your essentials are solid, you don't have to own a zillion things. Nor should we aspire to, for obvious reasons. You don't need to have both sweet and hot paprika? Is that what you're trying to tell me? I don't think you do. And that's why I'm so excited that our sponsor for season three is Cezanne, a sustainable Parisian brand that nails the essentials. And this at a surprisingly accessible price point, given their commitments to quality and to eco-friendly business practices. Mm, they're a B Corp, aren't they? They are. Visit sezane.com to see what I mean. Thank you for getting through an entire season of fanfare and being here for this very, 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 very special one-on-one, unscripted. Eric Clapton, unplugged, baby. It's fanfare, unscripted, and we're here and we've prepared nothing. Nothing. Nothing at all. The baby ate our homework. Some of you have been telling us that you want to just hear us talk crap at each other, so this is what we're going to (laughs) do. We've saved up all our chat and haven't spoken in an inordinately long amount of time. One, because we need to have this gorgeous, unscripted, wild, fanfare-gone-electric conversation. And two, because we're about to spend an entire month in each other's presence and we're scared of having nothing to say to each other. Yeah, nothing to say. (laughs) I think it's been since Edinburgh University that we haven't spent that long together. I know. So, dear listener, if this is the last season of Fanfare, it's because (laughs) things went horribly wrong (laughs) and we were not able to spend a month in each other's presence and remain friends. (laughs) Or our children attacked each other with metal spoons. Oh my gosh. Frida, the other day in the car, short child-related anecdote, I promise it will be brief, but they were in the car and... They're very obsessed with each other, my two kids. They're two and five. Frida's the two-year-old. Ezzy accidentally, when she was strapping herself into her car seat, poked Frida in the eye. And Frida, who's just starting to speak in full tense sentences, goes, Esme, you poked my eyeball. I hate you. <laughs> and she kept repeating, my eyeball. You poked my eyeball. And Esme, who's usually filled with remorse and sadness whenever her sister is in pain, couldn't stop laughing. Like she couldn't, she was cracking up because Frida just kept repeating the word eyeball. Anyway, I hope something like that doesn't happen. Yeah, well, Mia's always like, Arthur, you booped me. You booped me. Stop booping me. And he just laughs like how you're laughing right now. He's a baby and can't answer anyway. Don't boop me. Mom, mom, he booped me. He can't answer for his boopiness just yet. What even is a boop? What even is a boop? A Betty boop. It's like a comic book word. I like it. Okay, so our kids are going to poke each other's eyeballs and boop each other and it's going to get <laughs> real. But in all seriousness, re-saving up chat, re-dinner parties, do you mm-hmm. find, Mon, that in this day and age when we know what everyone is up to for the most part, thanks to social media and WhatsApp and constant, incessant texting and things. Well, what everyone wants you to think that they're up to. Oh, point. Yes, true. It can be sometimes challenging to have 
good conversations with friends you haven't seen in a while because like a lot of your good stories have already been revealed. So on the one hand, yes. And it's not like when you used to, you know, when I used to brief my grandma and I'd start like six months ago and talk her through the whole thing. However, I will say, and I'm not like defending social media, influencers that I have, it would just be too obvious. No, but what I will say is that it does make, if you have a friendship like ours, it makes you cut to the chase a little bit more. So instead of being like, well, so I went on this Italian mini break holiday and then I'm like, oh my God, I just got back and my childcare has been canceled. And that's what I said to you before we started recording. And that's what I needed to talk about. It's the behind the social media. Yes, yes. That kind of chat that, okay. So the kind of like- The complaining. Right. (laughs) (laughs) The important complaining. Interesting. Do you think that dinner party chat in general has changed though since the advent of social media? Mm, yeah, probably. It probably has because, well, because of what you just said, people are not going to bother. I think that there's a presumption, this is going to sound kind of weird, but I think that there's a presumption that you know sort of the minimum about a person that you've never even met before. Yeah, you kind of pre-screen them. You know, all normal people can just pre-screen each other and it's like, okay, my friend Betty's coming to dinner. Betty Boop. You can go look her up. (laughs) Your friend's friend. Okay, but I have a question. So let's say, okay, on the one hand, you have looked the person up and you know everything about their Florentine mini break, including the devastatingly handsome, you know, red bikini that they wore. <laughs> or the- I you were going to say husband. Well, we know, of course we know about the devastatingly handsome husband. Sorry, Mark, that should have come first. No, I'm laughing. I'm saying that because I kept- Pimping him out. (laughs) Um, But also, or the judgmental pelican or whatever. But let's say that you showed up at a dinner party. Do you say, if Monica launches into a story about said Florentine mini vacay, do you say, oh, I know all about it? Like, (laughs) oh, I think that's really interesting. Or do you feign ignorance and say, like, oh, that sounds lovely. Where did you stay? Well, I think that you can divide the world into two types of people people who say, yeah, I saw. And people who don't because they're weirdly awkward about it, A, or just because they, which could be just quite nice, want to hear more about it and don't want to block you. Mm. I think it's really awkward because there are some people who I can kind of tell when people are pretending that they haven't already seen something on Instagram. Yeah. I know you know this. Not in a smug way like I know you follow me because there's lots of people who don't. But just when I know someone follows me and I saw them see my stories. You commented on that post. (laughs) Yeah, Becky. Well, so, okay, but on the other side of things, let's say, because sometimes you have missed, you know, the algorithm has its ways. Sure. And sometimes you miss a critical piece of information or a caption is too cryptic and I'm certainly guilty of this. I'm guilty of this. Maybe you've liked the person's post and even commented on it, but you fail to register that that post was announcing their engagement. (laughs) And so the next time you see them, you don't congratulate them because you just thought it was a really cute picture of them with their boyfriend or whatever. Has that happened to you? That happened to me when I was pregnant with Mia. Yeah, I thought I'd announced it on Instagram and people like didn't get it. Yeah, it's tough out there. It's a weird world. It's a very weird world. Have dinner parties changed? I think so. I mean, I've stopped having them, so no. Right. I just have them on the the radio. Uh, yeah. I, ha- I had one the other night, actually. With the Emily's. Which Emily's? The Emily's are my group of English-speaking female friends 
oh, in Paris. That. And we had not only the Emily's to dinner, but we had the Emily's husbands who all happened to be Frenchmen. Oh my gosh. Wait, so what's their, are they the Marks or are they the Philippes? Well, there's a Mark, there's an Olivier. There's two Olivier's, in fact. And there's a David. In fact, two of the Emily's are former Fanfare podcast guests. I thought you were going to say former listeners and I got worried. <laughs> former Fanfare pro- they maybe that as well after this episode. Okay, so I don't have that many dinner parties mainly because as I've banged on about a lot, I'm not like the most confident cook, but I do go to a lot of dinner parties because a lot of brands have dinner parties in Paris and it's part of my work socializing requirements (laughs) but was this one you hosted did you host this one i know i actually hosted the emily's in my own house yeah in my own okay so tell me about this what happened what went down well we were introducing the max and olivier's and and david's it was just a nice pre-summer emily conference because we had to what we mainly do in the emily's whatsapp group and when we like go out for drinks is like bitch about cultural differences Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. it's like a safe space and um so like something that really gets to the emily's and people who have followed my writing in the past probably know this is like the emily's do not enjoy this rule in france this sort of unspoken rule that men are supposed to serve the wine and like women are supposed to wait around to have a man realize that their glass is empty so I was obviously like rolling around, topping everybody up, topping up the Olivier's, you know, like making this huge point about it. And Emily's, the Emily's were obviously cheering me on and shouting, low tide. Low tide. I hope it's okay that I'm now picturing you wearing rollerblades at this dinner party. Your K2 rollerblades. Yeah, I rollerbladed and I rollerbladed to make it extra North American. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But I didn't wear my elbow and knee protections, which Susan would have been very upset about. Well, listener, in case you're curious, Monica and I used to go for six-hour rollerblades (sighs) together. And Susan, if you're listening, Monica used to stash her elbow and knee pads, which were required wearing under a flower bush. (laughs) Susan is my mother, if anyone's wondering. (laughs) Sorry, Susan. That happened. But look how, look at your elbows and knees. They're fine. They're a little scabby. But anyway, what I was getting to here is that obviously, I mean, it was an apéro dînatoire, which means like a, it's this French thing. I love this. Explain this term. This is the best thing. So it, apéro is technically the kind of nibble and drink that you have before dinner to whet your appetite, except for in France, it can sort of last all night. Short form for apéritif. Yeah, and I mean, in Italy, it's a thing too. In Spain, I mean, it's a thing everywhere, I would assume. The dinatoire means that there is a sufficient amount of food that you don't actually need to have dinner after. So you basically just drink and like nibble all night. It's a recognition of the fact that you're going to ruin your appetite. It's a dinatory aperitif. Don't book dinner afterwards and you can stay till midnight. Don't book dinner and go crazy on the cheese and the gherkins. But after midnight see what your host is like (laughs) and you can go crazy on the cheese and gherkins it's also the only time that french people will like allow cheese pre-din pre a pre-din cheese a pre-din cheese which is a big cultural difference but probably good for the avoidance of cheese dreams quite but it's also (laughs) an apéro dînatoire i find is much easier to host because you just prepare everything in advance and put it out on the dining room table and my apartment's layout and i'm not complaining but 
the kitchen is rather far away from the dining room. So it's not like this kind of new age open plan thing where I can be talking to my guests while cooking. So it's just a real faff and I get really freaked out about timings. So you prepare stuff. And actually this was more of a potluck. So the Emily is all brought beautiful things. And then we all just put it on the table and started aperoing the second we got here, which really broke the ice for the Olivier's and David's and Mark's. And it was a great success. But anyway, I mean, obviously what I was getting to, and I'm sure you see it coming, is that I was so completely dead set on pouring everyone's wine in my female capacity as wine pourer that the Emily's and their plus ones were pretty tipsy by the end of it. <laughs> <laughs> it got really rowdy. Also, just to like defend the French, so they think that it's like a show, sign of chivalry and politesse, and it's the fault of the, like the woman should drink as much as she wants. It's the fault of the man sitting next to her to not have noticed that she has no wine left. But I don't know about that. I find it all rather fuddy-duddy. I mean, I think the onus being on the man to both entertain and maintain the tide levels, it's too much pressure. But is the onus on the man to entertain? Well, I think in France it sort of is, isn't it? Aren't they meant to? Is it? <laughs> oh, that, that's interesting. I would say the onus on in traditional circles, I would say the onus is more on the woman to entertain. Okay, well, if she's singing and dancing, then all he has yes. to worry about is keeping her <laughs> glass full, then that's fine. That's a division of labor, you know, as long right. as he takes his job seriously and isn't trying to get her trashed or something. But I think it's when someone is both really into their long, boring story and neglecting to fill your wine glass that you're really in deep trouble. It's very annoying. <laughs> and I've just been known to get up like even, you know, with Mark's grandparents and just fill up my own glass and like pretend not to be shocked. Yeah, yeah, no. And I've done this in France too. And I've also been you know, arrested for it, but it's <laughs> worth it. <laughs> and full disclosure, I'm probably more likely to be the person torturing the person next to me with a long and in-depth story about my daughter's eyeball. <laughs> oh, I loved that story. What did she say again? <laughs> you poked my eyeball. I you hate you. My eyeball. It was her first I hate you to her sister. I hate you. <laughs> and Hesie was just cracking up. Have you ever said I hate you to someone at a dinner party? Oh. I, now I'm trying to think of the French version of that, which is like such, such a... Like, je te hais. Je te hais. It's such a hard word to say. It is. It's like, and you can't believe that it's so similar to English. You're like, this must be wrong. Je te hais. Have I ever said I hate you to someone at a dinner party? Wow, that's a great question. I've said it to myself. <laughs> yes, definitely. A certain amount of self-loathing at times will appear. I don't think so. That's good. I'm currently writing about a dinner party in which there's some hatred changing hands in the kitchen while a scrabble goes on, actually. I think that will sometimes happen, like a certain amount of passive aggressive behavior on the part of the hosts behind the scenes, especially if it's mm -hmm. like a co-hosted dinner party mm. under, you know, because there are a lot of time pressures associated. If it's not a, an apéro dînatoire and you're trying to like keep the souffle aloft while also et cetera, et cetera, it can be a lot. Absolutely, it can be a lot and people are hungry. The dinner parties that take place in my life in the summer are of a very specific nature. 
Not that you asked, but I'll tell you. No, I'd like to know. (laughs) Timing is really important. It's the most wonderful thing. Three and a half hours, three hours, depending on traffic, north of Toronto in Algonquin Provincial Park. We retire to a cabin without electricity that is boat access only, that has you're, it no sounds indoor like plumbing. You're being sarcastic. <laughs> I'm being so serious. And it's glorious. And this is with my husband's family, and they've been doing it since the kids were born and well before. And it's just, I mean, it's it's amazing. And now there are six cousins under six. So we'll all be there together this weekend. Cooking happens outdoors on a fire pit. So the fire has to be prepared starting at like 3.30 in the afternoon in order for it to be ready. You know, the coals have to be hot, ready for cooking. So the timing is intricate. The timing is extremely intricate. So there are a few things that happen on an indoor stove that dates back to like 1935. (laughs) And then there are some items that happen on the fire. Sometimes what will happen is like we need an ETA from the fire So let's say they're doing some halibut on the fire, which is what we've been doing lately, and it's incredible. And then inside, let's say we're doing asparagus on the stove. Like anyone who's done asparagus on the stove recently understands that you can either end up with al dente, too crispy, annoying, crunchy, raw asparagus or soggy asparagus. And so if the menfolk are yelling two minutes, we prepare the asparagus to be ready in two minutes, but then they're constantly revising. And so then we'll get like a six minutes and then like an eight minutes. And we're like, what? what? (laughs) And so definitely Denise and I in our roller skates in the kitchen and, you know, Sophie and whoever else is around will kind of, there's a certain amount of, (laughs) what do you mean? Eight minutes being like shouted across the forest. back to them, And then they'll be like four minutes and we'll be like, I believe I'll believe it when I see it. (laughs) But it always ends up working perfectly somehow. And I'm very proud to say that I have experienced dinner in Algonquin Park and it's delightfully, first of all, full of atmosphere and a charming experience overall. We do need to talk about the small amount of homework that our babies didn't eat. Yeah, so we decided that for this last summary episode, we were going to, a summary summary of our favorite dinner parties in fiction of all time. But I want to just preface this with, for some reason, my favorite depictions of dinner are often the most awkward or freaky ones. So of the I hate you's and the what can go wrongs and the sort <laughs> of like aim. under the table drama. Yeah, because yeah, when yeah. you line people up face to face or around a table, for some reason, a lot of confrontation or lack thereof can go on. Mm. That's what's so great about it. And you really get to know a person, which is the reason that this podcast exists. Should we exchange our feelings about the greatest dinner parties. Yes. I'm so curious which ones you thought of. I have three and each of mine focuses on a different part of the dinner party, a different stage in the dinner. Oh, okay. Well, why don't you take us through them? So the first one- The aperitif or the entree? Well, so I'll start with the aperitif actually. Have you read, Monica, and I don't mean watched because I know we've watched it multiple times together, but have you read Bridget Jones's Diary? I don't think so, and I'm very ashamed to say it. Okay, so you must because... And I'm obsessed with Bridget Jones's Diary, so I'm quite ashamed to admit Well, it's you shouldn't be ashamed. You should be excited. You have a lot to look forward to. It is 
so honestly the films are hilarious and it's funnier really because the cast is so good the cast is so good and you'll be picturing them and it's like it's more raw it's more out there and there are more More out there there are a lot more dinner parties (laughs) it's not just the one with the blue soup it's not just that famous one that you're going to think that I'm going to mention there are so very many different gatherings over a meal and the one that I'm going to mention now is an anniversary party that Mark Darcy is throwing for his parents at his fancy house in Holland Park. And it is a pivotal scene. Are you going to read from it? I am. Just I'm just going to read the part about the cocktail nibblies because it's kind of funny. Please. So Bridget shows up with her dad. He had certainly pushed the boat out for his mom and dad. All the trees were dotted with red fairy lights and strings of shiny red hearts in a really quite endearing manner. And there was a red and white canopied walkway leading all the way up to the front path. We were ushered down a dramatic curved pale wood stairway lit by red heart-shaped candles on each step. Downstairs was one vast room with a dark wood floor and a conservatory giving onto the garden. The whole room was lit by candles. Dad and I just stood and stared, completely speechless. Instead of the cocktail fancies you would expect at a parent generational do, compartmentalized cut glass dishes full of gherkins, plates sporting savory doilies and half grapefruits bespined with cheese and pineapple chunk laden cocktail sticks, there were large silver trays containing prawn wontons, tomato and mozzarella tartlets and chicken satay. The guests looked as though they couldn't believe their luck, throwing their... (laughs) (laughs) throwing their heads back and roaring with laughter. Una Alkenbury looked as though she had just eaten a lemon. Oh dear, said Dad, following my gaze, as Una bore down on us. I'm not sure this is going to be Mummy and Una's cup of tea. Bit showy, isn't it, said Una, the second she was within earshot, pulling her stole huffily around her shoulders. I think if you take these things too far, it gets a bit common. Oh, don't be absurd, Una. It's a sensational party, said my father, helping himself to his 19th canopy. (laughs) (laughs) So I think the lesson we can take from that is, one, yes, no such thing as too much decor. The heart-shaped candles on every step laid by Mark Darcy, the like stuffy lawyer Mark Darcy for his, you know, parents anniversary. It's very sweet. And it gets everyone into the spirit of things. And I think that's like, it's a little bit tacky, but it's also a bit of an icebreaker and it's nice. And then two, really make sure there's just a lot of upfront food, don't you think? And like Mm, good upfront food, like non-fussy, non, you know, toothpicky, non-half grapefruit bespined with anything, but like Mm -hmm, (laughs) solid, mm -hmm. Doesn't matter what happens next. Doesn't matter if I wreck the dinner because you've got all these canapes in your hand. Bird in the hand, Absolutely. you know? That's a really good tip as well. That could be a great summer read. Mm. I quote Bridget Jones all the time. I'm obs- I really, I really love it. You have a lot to look forward to. You really do. Can I just ask you though, because I saw um, something passing on social media recently about how it hasn't aged, or I suppose how the Hugh Grant character hasn't aged well. Oh. Do you read it that way? I mean, she's pretty partaking in the flirtation, though. It's oh, I mean, it's all very... Or is it se- indeed sexual harassment? And I'm not saying harassment because it's not how they pronounce it. Oh, right. that. At the opening of every diary entry in the book, she lists her weight, which it's helpful for me that I don't understand stone. So I like... I have zero, I have no idea what she's talking about, but she's obsessing over, you know, she's weighing herself every single yeah. morning. And it's, it's, 
the hysteria is, it's disturbing, but it's also very funny. She'll be like, how is it possible that I gained three pounds in the middle of the night? Um, <laughs> and, you know, it it's horrible. And then she's also counting how many cigarettes she's smoked, which is like a thousand, and how many calories she's consumed and how many units of alcohol she's had, which again is a thousand usually. <sighs> She does that in the movie as well when she's reading from her diary. She does. It's true. But I don't know that there's as much of an emphasis on the kind of like disordered eating aspect of it. Oh, okay. And I think in the book for me, like, sure, that's controversial. Definitely for some people, it could be really upsetting and triggering. But I also think that it's an accurate portrayal of what this character and a lot of women have gone through at a certain time in their lives. And so I think the kind of this book really does read to me as like, it's definitely an interesting product of its time. It's like 90s London. So the amount of smoking and drinking and all of that. Her friends too, the blonde and brunette, I forget what their names are. And they're like, well, no offense, Bridge, but your entire future happiness depends on this date and whether you wear this giant pair of pants. Exactly. And so it's a feminist book. And I would really argue that, yes, she's partaking of all of it. She's partaking in the harassment. She's partaking in the disordered eating. She's partaking in all of it because the entire culture that she's living in is telling her your worth depends on being the right amount of skinny, the right amount of drunk, the right amount of girlfriend, the right amount of fiance. It's horrible. The right amount in the eyes of Mark Darcy. In the eyes of the man who's going to make your life worth living. And I think the Jane Austen, you know, it's obviously it's... But it's totally tongue-in-cheek. Well, it's an adaptation of Pride and Prejudice, but the point of Pride and Prejudice, I mean, there are a lot of points, but one of them is that these women will be destitute if they don't get married. You know, we talked about a previous episode, Prima Chenisher, and okay, fine, it's the landed aristocracy, it's a niche thing, like there's lots of other horrible stuff that's happening that Jane Austen isn't writing about, but... These women, because they don't have a brother and because Mr. Collins is, you know, going to inherit their home and all of their father's everything, they will be destitute if they don't get married off. And those are the stakes of the book. And that's why the mom is so nuts. And by the way, the stakes for a lot of women still today in other cultures. Exactly. She's saying in 1990s London... Bridget is saying, similarly, my value, my worth, my future, my everything depends on. And I think that's extremely disturbing. And part of what makes it so successful is that she is buying into it to an extent, but then she's also chafing against it. And she Mm -hmm. sort of has to buy into it. But then she's also, you know, there are moments when she throws it all out. And so I do think the kind of push and pull between am I agreeing to this? Am I complicit in this? Am I a part of this? Or do I reject all of this outright? is part of is what makes it so interesting for me it really there is like a strong feminist element to it and also the like following her own sexual desires yeah stuff and sorry this is not an intellectual point it's just that it should be noted that Bridget Jones 2 the movie is also excellent (laughs) and it was one of the last movies I went and saw with my British granny I was like in my early 20s and she was in her early 90s and we were both crying with laughter. So yeah, what did you hear about the Hugh Grant character though? Just that he's too grabby grabby. Do you know what? I can't really remember. I mean, it was something along the lines of actually what was going on in his glass office over to Bridge was sexual harassment in the workplace, which I am not in any way actually making fun of, but, uh, and saying that the movie hadn't aged well, etc. The thing is, 
she wasn't not it's not even that she wasn't into it like there's no question like it's in writing it's in her literal emails I think a lot of what we have come to recognize as wrong was so accepted then. Was it wrong? Wait, wait, wait. I, wait, I'm going to hold you to this. Was it wrong? Of her to go along with it or of him to initiate it? Well, he, uh, sure. Okay, you're right. He initiates it. But she is pretty interested from the get-go. I mean, he is her direct boss, right? Yeah, you're right. So that's wrong, isn't it? And he's like repeatedly asking her if skirt is off sick. <laughs> And then also, isn't there a, your tits look good in that top line? Like, it's a little, it's more than a little borderline. Yeah. It's funny and it happens, but I think we're now a little bit more kind of just, no, not a little bit, a lot more critical of that status quo. Well, yeah, I suppose it's just your boss is not supposed to hit on you and it's his fault if he does. Yeah. Should we move on? <laughs> okay, well, we're going to lift our brows a few notches <laughs> if right. you're ready. If you're ready for that. So I came across this one the other day. There is about smack dab in the middle of Anna Karenina. Mm -hmm. The best dinner party. The best. On so many levels. Okay, so it's at Oblonsky's house. And to give a little bit of context, Oblonsky is Anna's brother. He too cheats. <laughs> the book opens with Oblonsky cheating and the fallout in his family. The first time we meet Anna, she's taking the train from Petersburg to Moscow to settle things in the Oblonsky house because he has been cheating and he's been caught and Dolly, his wife, is very upset because he was actually cheating with the governess and it all went pretty wrong. And For a she's going to leave him or, you know, she doesn't know what she's doing, but it's not going well. And so Anna, the first time we encounter her, is on her way to smooth things over her for her brother. And it's actually said that everyone in the household is on Oblonsky's side. Even though they like Dolly better, they think she's really making a bit of a tempest in a teapot here because, come on, she's had five children. Of course, he's cheating with the governess. And then, obviously, if you are familiar with the plot of Anna Karenina, like, woman cheats, world ends. This is the first time I've reread this as, like, an, an adult who's married. Like, I read it for the first time when I was 16. Right. And it is very, very interesting to me. Uh, we should do a Tolstoy dinner at some point. But text, not person. I think there's a comment in here about what happens when a woman cheats versus what happens when a man cheats. And in the dinner party, there are multiple conversations in this dinner party that are fascinating. One is about whether women should be educated at all. There's a conversational aspect to this dinner party that's amazing. And one of the points that comes up is there is actually a character at the dinner who says to Karenin, who everybody knows his wife Anna is cheating, that he thinks that the liberation of women or the kind of any kind of emancipation for women is held back by the different consequences for infidelity in a man and in a woman. And I'm like, oh my God, Tolstoy, is this your thesis? So the dinner party mm. contains a lot that's interesting. And one, and there's also a performance aspect to it. So I actually want to focus on the performance piece because Zablonski is like this bon vivant character. He's actually, he brings Kitty and Levin, the big romance in Anna Karenina is Kitty and Levin, and he brings yeah. them together at this dinner party. So the purpose of this dinner party is actually to reunite these two people who he knows are in love with each other, but for various reasons haven't been able yeah. to say that. He goes out and he buys the turbot and the asparagus himself. Like he's taking it all very seriously. He goes to the house of every person who's been invited. 
that he calls on them to make sure they're coming, which in the case of Krennan is necessary because he wouldn't have shown up. And because he's a Blonsky and because that takes him a long time, he actually ends up being quite late for his own dinner party. So he's so busy calling on all these people that he shows up late. And so this is the part that I want to read. Oblonsky noticed at once that without him, things were going badly in the drawing room. His wife in her gala dress, a gray silk, evidently worried both about the children who would have to dine alone in the nursery and about her husband who had not yet returned, had not managed in his absence to mix the guests properly. They all sat like a parish priest's wife visiting, as the old Prince Shabatsky expressed it, evidently puzzled as to why they were all assembled there and forcing out words in order not to remain silent. I love that. <laughs> the good-natured Tarotsin clearly felt quite out of it, and the smile on his thick lips, with which he met Oblonsky, said as clearly as words, Well, my friend, you have planted me among clever ones. To have a drink at the Chateau de Fleurs would be more in my line. The old prince sat silent, his shining eyes looking askance at Karenin, and Oblonsky saw that he had already prepared some remark wherewith to polish off that dignitary of state, whom people were invited to as of a dish of sturgeon. Kitty kept looking toward the door, gathering courage not to blush when Konstantin Levin should enter. Young Shabatsky, who had not been introduced to Karenin, tried to look as if this did not make him feel at all awkward. Karenin himself, as the Petersburg way is when one dines with ladies, was in evening dress with a white tie, and Oblonsky saw by his face that he had come only to keep his promise, and by being in that company was fulfilling an unpleasant duty. He was the chief cause of the iciness which had frozen all the visitors till Oblonsky's arrival. On entering the drawing room, Oblonsky made his excuses, explaining that he had been kept by the particular prince who was his usual scapegoat whenever he was later absent. And in a moment, he had reintroduced everybody, having brought Karenin and Koznishev together. He started them off on the subject of the Russification of Poland, and they immediately caught on, Pestov joining them. Having patted Trotsin on the shoulder, he whispered something funny in his ear and got him to sit down next to Dolly and the old prince. Then he told Kitty that she was looking very nice and introduced young Shabatsky to Karenin. In a moment, he had kneaded all that society dough in such a way that the drawing room was in first-rate form and was filled with animated voices. I love it. You're so right about that one. Okay, what's the lesson to take from this one? So the kneading of society dough is the lesson, I think, in this case. So Oblonsky has been very strategic in the group that he's assembled here, but without drawing on the elements that he knew they had, you know, of course there's that cliche of like, you have to introduce two people and tell them one thing about each other they'll find interesting so that you can kind of start them off on conversation. From Bridget Jones. Right, true. And he knew, for example, that like he had invited these three intellectuals who have slightly differing opinions and that he knew that if he got them going, they would set each other off in conversation and have a fascinating, riotous conversation. And he knew that Levin and Kitty needed time alone together. So he essentially, he needed to pull the puppet strings. Mm -hmm. You know, he had brought this cast onto his stage for a specific reason. They were not particularly good at improv. And until he gave them some cues, it was completely impossible for them to carry out the theater that was required. And so I yeah. think it's it's the kind of it's it's the host's duty not only to get the souffle on time and the wine the you know the glasses filled and all of that but also to help people you know to arrange the blocking and to get to prompt and to kind of yeah. set everyone up for conversational success. Well, I quite agree. And what is more important in a dinner party than taking it taking one for the team and setting people up for conversational success? Right. 
Unless, well, I suppose it depends if you're the, if you're at your own dinner party for to make yourself happy or to make other people happy. Hmm. Oh, that's interesting. Unless you're one of those nice people who is happy when other people are happy. Oh, that is nice. Well, I guess that's the ideal, isn't it? Take them or leave them. That's true of Oblonsky. <laughs> <laughs> Emma, true or false, one of the best things about parties, including imaginary ones, is playing dress up. True, true. True or false, our current clothing habits are one of the biggest contributors to climate change. Miserably true also. Which brings me back to our season three sponsor, Cezanne. Not only are their clothes so timelessly chic that you'll want to wear them over and over for decades, possibly centuries to come, but they are made well, both from a quality and from an environmental standpoint. Cezanne is a certified B Corp that sources organic textiles, ships in boxes that are either 100% recycled or sourced from sustainably managed forests, powers all of its stores with renewable energy, and has managed to reduce the carbon footprint of one garment by 17.2% over the last year. Plus, the clothes are dreamy for a Tuesday morning or for dinner with your dream guest. Visit Cezanne.com to stop browsing. Okay, so what about you, Mon? What dinner parties have you prepared for us? I was just thinking about mine. They're actually all quite dark because for some reason I really enjoy watching people in awkward situations and how they react to them. So make of that what you will. And make of these dinner parties what you will. I'm not going to tell you what to make of them, but I'll tell you what I take from them. So I'm going to start, should I start lowbrow and go high? Or should I start highbrow and go low? We've just had Karenina, so I'll start lowbrow and go high. My first one is from Meet the Parents. (laughs) Okay, so not only am I a huge Ben Stiller fan, and like I'm also a massive fan of Zoolander, and it's deeper message about the fashion industry. Mm. I literally reference it constantly at fashion shows, and people are like, do you even want to be here? (laughs) Um, I actually reference it a lot, too. The files are in the computer. Is this a center for ants? (laughs) I say that about Mia's toys all the time. I was like, are you okay? But anyway, Meet the Parents is just such a brilliant depiction of one of the hardest things in our small lives that we often have to do. So, you know, once Bridget Jones is nailed down, is going on a date with this guy, then you have to go and meet his parents. It can be incredibly awkward. I actually am lucky to have quite a good relationship with my in-laws, but you know, we still stumble over occasional cultural differences. I mean, Greg in Meet the Parents is American, but not from totally the same background as his lovely wife. And then the parents who are played by Blythe Danner and Robert De Niro are just so hysterical. I don't know, this movie makes me laugh as hard as Bridget Jones, I have to be honest. Okay, I have to watch this. It's been a while. I just remember hiding behind the couch while watching this movie because it's so horrifically awkward. I think it's the first dinner that he's there and he's staying with his new, you know, big time loves, super uptight, kind of like waspy parents. And the dad is clearly quite happy to make his future potential son-in-law feel awkward and he is like okay well here we are at dinner Greg do you want to say grace and I think he knows very well that Greg is Jewish and so he's like really just trying to like highlight any disparity between 
Greg and the family that he's hoping to be a part of. Obviously, the like mix of Jewish and Christian ideologies like is an underlined issue and a thematic motif in this, but he just Frank just completely stumbles over it and he's like, Dear God. <laughs> I'm not even gonna quote it properly. It's just so awkward. And then there's more later about like milking animals that aren't cows. And he and Robert De Niro is like, uh, I'm not a cow, Greg. Can you milk me? No, I think I believe the line is, honestly, this is like the line I most associate with the movie, Meet the Parents. I've got nipples, Greg. Can you milk me? <laughs> oh, yeah. You can milk <laughs> anything with nipples. It's just such a genius, a like hilarious meanness. And it just, anytime there's like a new girlfriend or boyfriend in Mark's extended family, because there's like a ton of cousins, I just, all I can think about is that movie. Right, because there's kind of a hazing element. Yes, there is. I mean, I'm not accusing my in-laws of doing hazing, but there is, or even my family, like when Mark first came to our house, like there's always a little bit of teasing. Right. At once, it can be one of the great moments in life because you kind of shuffle through it awkwardly, but it eventually works out. Or it can be like a defining horrific moment in your life when you realize you're going to have to deal with people who you don't necessarily have the same sense of humor as or background or whatever it is. It's like a job interview. Like anyone who's basically anyone who's trying hard to please is an easy exactly. target. Exactly. And so I actually think that the lesson we can take from this, I was just thinking is like, don't try too hard, like be polite, be civil, but be self you know, possessed. That's the only thing that's going to impress that Robert De Niro style dad. Yeah. You have to just be you that actually but sometimes being you is a problem because you're now reminding me of one day yes <laughs> and the famous game where he like breaks his wife's nose because he gets to do you remember this scene it's in both the book and the film and they're both excellent so definitely the book is by dave nichols if i'm not mistaken anyway dexter the male protagonist gets into a particularly awkward in-law dinner at one point that's true <laughs> and he's a little bit too much himself i think that's because himself at that point is not a totally well person and he's he's had a few too many vodkas at that point which is another reason why dinner parties are often so juicy like things you mm. know it's the it's the drinking too that can the really alcohol throw mm -hmm. fuel on the social fire right absolutely absolutely so my list of three here they sort of increase in awkwardness if possible, but it's not that they increase in awkwardness. It's that the stakes get higher and higher. Okay, what's the next one? So my next one is from Atonement. Yes. One of my favorite films based on one of my favorite novels by Ian mm. McEwan. But I've watched the film more recently than I read the book. So I'm going to talk about the film because I rewatch it sometimes. I just think it's just so wonderful and the pacing of it and the uh, cinematography and the acting. And I actually can't, Totally hear people diss Kira Knightley when I think about that movie. I think she's really good in it. And also Saoirse Ronan. Oh, I mean, Saoirse Ronan is extraordinary. And that was like her one of her breakout roles, wasn't it? If not it, me. I think it was her breakout role. She's extraordinary. I mean, she's still a child in it. Yeah. Very much so. And, um, oh my gosh, I've just lost the name of the lead actor who's so wonderful. James McAvoy. He's, He's pretty so dishy and really, 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 really good at acting. <laughs> so... Um, <laughs> 
really so, good at the library scene. These are really good at yeah. So okay, this dinner comes right after the library scene. So so McEwen sets up this whole lead up. And then the moving, there's the pacing of the typewriter that's creating this tension the whole time through the whole. If you haven't seen this movie, you have to see it. I mean, it all goes, things get really bad and it's quite sad. It's very, very, very deeply sad. But the setup of this, this mix up that will then affect everyone's lives is so brilliantly sewn together. And it all revolves around a little girl played by Saoirse Ronan who accidentally reads a sexy, dirty love letter that James McAvoy has written to Kira. And it all takes place in this very grand, posh country house environment where it's in those situations, it's always what's happening under the surface, right? Mm. And it's the juxtaposition between those two things. Basically, there's like fiery lust going on between James McAvoy's character and Kira Knightley's. And she's read his sexy letter and they've just sort of given into their desire and, and had this sort of like very intense sex scene in the library in her wonderful green silk dinner dress. I mean, evening dress because they're wearing black tie to dinner, of course. By the way, side note, if anyone has ever come across that dress or a similar one that emerald gown no i've looked i don't know the whole story i mean i looked like years ago if we can like idea and then get me one (laughs) Mm, it's so beautiful anyway so it's all very spicy except then they've got to go have this sit down fancy dinner in the dining room in black tie with the various family members and the horrible guests and the horrible guests and that horrible rotten guy awful guy who's pretending to be nice and these two are sort of sit, sitting next to each other, playing footsie and grabbing each other's hands on the table. But Bryony, who's about 12, is losing her mind, but trying to keep it together through clenched teeth in this really English sort of childhood way. I'm not the one who's done something wrong. And they're talking about the twin cousins fighting and they've run away and all of this drama. But then underneath it, and the, and the pace is building again and the tension. But underneath it, Kira Knightley and James McFoy are still basically like they've been interrupted in the middle of hot steamy sex and they just basically want to go back to it but they don't get to do they Mm. no they don't Jacqueline Duran designed this dress she was the costume designer for the film and it says on the internet that she designed it with director Joe Wright and that it's worn during the film's climactic scene (laughs) almost climactic that's why there's only one copy of that dress, so we can't get it. But maybe someone has been clever enough to copy it. Oh, the internet is filled with dresses that are claiming to be siblings. Or offspring. Okay, love love that pick. Great movie if you haven't seen it. Great book if you haven't read it. So let's take the bar up one notch higher towards the pinnacle of awkward dinner drama. And this, my friends, comes from the Scottish play. Oh. <laughs> Wow. There's a bit of a British theme going on here. I suppose there's a bit of a British theme in a lot of the history of literature, isn't there? I have a very American third pick, so... Good. Uh, yeah, Excellent. and I've been Russian. You know, we've been all over the map. But, okay, so the Scottish the Scottish play. Tell me. Which one is that? I can't remember. <laughs> if you don't know what the Scottish play is, you can look it up. But we're not acting here, but we are performing in some, on some level, so I'd rather not say it. 
be honest. It's only in a theater that you're not allowed to say it, right? I really don't want to say it. Okay, we're not going to say it. I mean, you could say it if you want. But I don't want anything to happen to you either. I actually quite like you, as it turns out. (laughs) (laughs) One of the best strange tchotchke items I've ever come across, tell me if you've ever seen this, was a little bar of soap that was labeled Lady McBlank's Guest Soap. And like (laughs) in fine print all over it was like, out, out, damn spot, like excellent for (laughs) bloodstains. Did it have red specks in it? Yeah. It did, yeah. It was... (laughs) Anyway, okay, so McBlank, go on. I really want that soap. Okay, so basically, Macbeth. Oh, I just fucking said it back! <laughs> Holy shit! Ah. No! Oh, I have to touch all the wood! Ah! <laughs> I think it's okay. You're in France, it doesn't count. Oh my goodness. <laughs> oh, you have no. to be able to, I mean, when people are performing it, they say the names of the characters. Like, you have to be able to say it. There has got to be some kind of pass here. Oh, God. <laughs> okay, Macbeth wants to be king. His wife is pushing him behind the scenes. She's actually even more evil than him. He's a bit of a wet blanket, but it all gets really messy because there's witchcraft. It's all very dark. I mean, it's so wonderfully Scottish and brilliant. Macbeth is willing, pushed on by his wife, willing to kill anyone he potentially sees getting in his way, which actually is like, I'm going to bring this back later, but it's not that crazy. A lot of dictators get up to this kind of shenanigans on the regular these days. Macbeth kills his friend Banquo, who he sees another as another threat to the throne because in, they go see some witches, three witches, very important in their prophecy. They proclaim that the Macbeth will be king but the Banquo's son and descendants will be the future kings. And McBee is like, what? Now, obviously, there's some truth to what the witches are saying, but Macbeth is like, well, I need to stop this fate from happening. Can't stop fate, can you? But he thinks I've got to. And Lady <laughs> Macbeth is a little confused about fate too. So mm. she, he kills Banquo, but then there's a banquet. And at this dinner with all the thanes, so all the Scottish Aristo people at their castle, who shows up but Banquo. (laughs) Best walk striding in, ready to socialize. And he sees the man that he's just killed. And he turns around and they look at each other. And then, of course, his wife has to throw out all of the thanes. Like, he can't deal with any of this stuff himself. Because he's not actually up to the evil tasks. Mm-hmm. Now, I am making no political statement here, but for <laughs> some reason, the reason that I thought about Macbeth and that scene is because I have just been on this marathon watching this horrifically depressing but also insanely interesting documentary called The House of Assad. A dangerous dynasty mm. and about Bashar al-Assad about Bashar al-Assad the president slash dictator of Syria because he was elected in an election where there was only him on the ballot mm-hmm. and he also obviously murdered hundreds of thousands of people who tried to create an uprising during the Arab Spring brief recap 
I'm over summarizing it. So are you saying behind every great murderer is a bloodthirsty woman? I don't know. It's often the case. I need to know what is up with Asma al-Assad. Okay. Was, wasn't she all over Vogue and things prior to this? Oh my gosh, of course. Joan Juliet Buck wrote a piece about her days, mm-hmm. days before the Arab Spring began mm-hmm. called Desert Rose. The, the thing is, so she's kind of, I suppose, whitewashed in a way. I mean, she grew up in London and speaks with a perfect British accent, was an investment banker in London, was accepted to Harvard, but chose instead to marry him and go to Syria. He was not, when she chose to marry him, he was not meant to be the ruler of Syria. It was meant to be his elder brother. His elder brother died. It's all very Shakespearean. Wow. And he suddenly, he was an eye doctor in London at Western Eye Clinic, whatever it's called, and was suddenly called up by his dictator father to come home immediately and take over. Oh, wow. And she followed along. Now, there are rumors, not even, sorry, not rumors. She has said on public television that during the Syrian civil war, she was offered more than once the opportunity for safe passage back to Britain. She's a British passport holder with her children, financial stability even, and guaranteed protection of her children. She refused to leave. Hmm. Now, would she have really been safe? Arguable. But it is the, you know, you would imagine that if she had abandoned the horrific situation and her horrific husband, she would have been protected by the British. All of this to say, if you look at the situation now, there are pieces coming out in respectable publications like the FT saying that she has personally consolidated the entire economy under her iron fist they have effectively stolen money from every big business in syria she's the one who knows how to do it she's the economist i basically banquo showed up went from thinking that maybe she was a victim of her husband to thinking like is he a victim of her right Underestimate women at your peril. Underestimate them, but also this is a terrible example because she is potentially pulling the strings behind the most arguably horrendous dictatorship of our time. So I want to do something about this. I'm fascinated by this. Mm-hmm. Ask my question. This is really interesting. That's just a wreck. That documentary, which was um, a BBC documentary I think about 12 years ago but it's still available to watch on corners of the internet and I really really recommend it just for understanding the Syria conflict a little bit better as well Dangerous Dynasty House of Assad highly recommend there's so many moving parts to the Syria conflict that it's good to get a recap even if it's quite upsetting and might hurt your night's sleep mm, mm, mm. I mean big picture you know in terms of underestimating women at your peril. I think something that some smart feminists have said is that you have to recognize in order to properly in any way level the playing field, you definitely need to stop assuming that women are either inferior or superior. Like they're just as good and just as bad, you know? And I think it's, it's in, oh, you know where it was? It was in, it was in White Lotus season two that this nugget of wisdom came from. Oh my God, it was. 
yes. when it's the yeah it's the it's the father is it the father or the grandfather saying to that son who's besotted with the italian woman who's taking him for a ride and yeah. he says something like you know you're not doing anyone any favors by assuming that every woman is is perfect like you have to learn that they're neither better than us nor worse than us <laughs> i love that what dinner party tips in terms of dinner party behavior can we take from the Scottish play? Oh. I guess don't murder. Don't murder. That's wrong. If you murder, you're probably not going to enjoy many social activities for the rest of your life or many activities unless you're a psychopath. <laughs> so maybe M-A-C-B-E-T-H is not actually a psychopath. Hmm. Maybe he's just trying to get out of future dinner parties because not everyone likes them. <laughs> yeah, you could just say you see a ghost and run out. Well, okay, actually, that brings me to my third, which is from this great read, Big Swiss. Ooh. Jen Began, I think that's how you pronounce it. It's set in Hudson, New York. So this is not Scottish or British. It is a very American, very funny novel. Very funny very irreverent, like refreshingly irreverent, goes to weird, weird places. Slight spoiler alert, just a little bit, not so much that it'll ruin anything, but it's about a woman who gets a job transcribing interviews for someone who's writing a book. And the person who's writing the book is a sex therapist in this small town. And she is sitting in this amazing old farmhouse that's falling apart around her and transcribing people's intimate secrets and then she starts to recognize their voices around town no uh, so she's and so she's like at the coffee shop or at the hipster bar or at the yoga whatever she like she can hear someone talk and then she knows everything about what's going on with them sexually and all of their deepest darkest secrets and she ends up falling in love with one of the clients a woman she nicknames big swiss and there's an incredible dinner party where she goes so big swiss is married and the main character has been listening to her conversations, falling in love with her, and then they run into each other at the dog park and she assumes a false name and doesn't own up to the fact that she knows this woman's deepest, darkest secrets and then starts an, a torrid affair with her and then goes to have dinner with her husband. <laughs> Wait, hang on, hang on. She's having a torrid affair with the woman? With the woman, whom she calls okay. in her mind Big Swiss. And the dinner goes so badly that she actually uses the nickname out loud accidentally for the first time. And the woman's <laughs> like, you call me Big Swiss? And her husband's like, that's perfect. <laughs> Is she big and Swiss? Uh, yeah. And it's this unsettling dinner where Big Swiss makes a huge pot of fondue and both the husband and the lover are struggling with the amount of like dense stringy cheese. But because she's Swiss, she's just like That's throwing so it back. <laughs> right, of course. Uh, and at one point, the lover tries to play footsie with Big Swiss and she finds that the husband's feet are already caressing his wife's feet and she apologizes. Like it's very awkward. How brilliantly awkward. But then she tries to escape. Anyway, it's um, you really should read this book. It's a lot of fun and a good antidote. It sounds like the kind of dark comedy I would be all over, and I'm going to buy it for a summer read. Thank you. Well, I can lend it to you when you come this way. But, okay, so to this point, though, and about the copious canapes at Mark Darcy's and all of that, when it comes to dinner parties, anything else can go wrong, but you definitely need to make sure that there is more than enough. That is a really food. good point. And I genuinely know people who don't worry about this. Also, sorry, this brings me to like a blanket statement. If you 
especially within like any kind of work context, like a lot of these fashion brands, it's very lovely of them to have dinners in nice places and invite press, but you have to feed people properly because that is what they have planned to eat that evening. Mm-hmm. And not everyone wants to be on the diet that you are on. <laughs> so if you eat like half of um, a grapefruit with like half of a cold piece of chopped fish all day that is your issue but diet on your own time and don't impose that on other people and don't assume that all fashion people are like lunatic dieters this is this is we're going back to Jane Austen it's Emma's dad Mr. Woodhouse who's always so concerned He's the one who wants to only ever eat half a grapefruit. And he's always so, he's like, don't have the pudding. He like takes it away from people at the table. <sighs> and he's like, you mustn't have that, Emma. And she's and she's having to like quietly funnel her guests food so that her dad doesn't worry too much about their, yeah. Or Davy in Love in a Cold Climate, right? Emily. Yeah. There's always, I love that. The character who's very concerned about these things. But you're right. Yeah. Don't impose your your regime on your guests. And for goodness sake, top up people's glasses because people will drink. It's up to people to figure out how much they're going to drink. I mean, the whole thing is like an FHB as well. What's FHB? FHB is if there's some sort of like dramatic shortage. So I'm just like not that good at organizing dinner parties, but I try and do it anyway sometimes. And if you realize there aren't enough potatoes, Mm. the people who won't eat that many potatoes are the hosts. Oh, uh, what does FHB stand for? Family hold back. Family hold back. I've never heard this before. But I think it must come from like British wartime because yes. Gran, my British grandmother used to just go FHB, but she did not have that accent at all. She'd go FHB, Family. FHB, FHB. And then like now my parents will say it, which means just like, Serve the guests first. Serve the guests first and don't reserve yourself because there's not enough of this. So you hold the dish and you say FHB. Or you say it in the kitchen when your kid comes in to help you bring something out or whatever. Oh, wow. Okay, that's a back pocketer. Love it. Or you can just, since you've got your rollerblades on, you can just head off to the nearest <laughs> monoprix. Well, and I'll get tell you, Mark some... had to go down and get more rosé for the Emily's the other night. Right, right, right. Don't assume that women are better or worse drinkers. <laughs> Is this the end of our freewheeling episode? I would say F, don't HB, when it comes to giving us feedback. And F means you, family, fanfare family, listener. And do not hold back on delivering us your... You don't have to send a thank you note after this dinner. You can send... You can you can send beef. You can send... <laughs> or you can send meat-free beef. Yep. And fanfare family, the email to reach us on is fanfarefanmail at gmail.com. Share your thoughts. Share your recommendations. We're going to miss you. We are going to miss you, but we will be back. With a very juicy season four. Oh, very juicy indeed. And in the meantime, let's just hope that our friendship, which has now been a long-distance friendship for some time, can withstand a month in each other's company. Well, we'll keep you updated on our social media channels, won't we? (laughs) So that when you come to dinner next, you don't have to, you can, let's just all agree to follow along and we don't have to pretend we didn't. 
Hopefully it'll be the real Emma, not the ghost of Emma. (laughs) My eyeball. (laughs) I hate you. Don't boop me. Thanks for being with us this season, everyone. Yes, thank you. Abianto. That's all.